Thank you, Darlene. It's such a privilege to be with you this evening. Welcome, everybody. I want to first of all say just to Etienne and the musicians, well done. Your, your hard work is evident. We are so thankful for you and the hours you put in. And also to Stephen and Darlene and the other leaders here that just are working hard and just working so good at just picking up our young adults and... There's a bright future ahead of us, and uh, thankful for that. And I also want to thank my other colleague, namesake, Pastor Louis, uh, another one. We have two of us in the house who's just been standing in for Letitia's on maternity leave and been overseeing and just keeping an eye on the young adults from our next-gen hub and really appreciate his time and effort extra that he puts in. Really appreciate it. It's fantastic. So we've been doing a series on the book of James in this time as we are talking about Arise, Shine. And standing up and shining for the Lord Jesus in wherever we live, in, in any space in our lives. And uh, I want to encourage you, I've received so many messages and so many just communications from people verbally or messages that I get uh, or WhatsApps or things just to people to say they've really appreciated this series and it's meant so many things to them. And uh, we have an email address at Hatfield. It's called talktous at hatfield.co.za. And I'd like to encourage you, if you want to send just a an appreciation or an application or a testimony of what the messages has meant to you anytime we share. Because ultimately, this is not about just telling you good stories and preaching. It's about empowering you to live your life for the glory of the Lord. So and if it's helping you, please send to us at talk to us at hatfield.co.za. And then sometimes we can use those stories when we have your permission. Or it just also helps and encourages uh, those of us that do the hard work of preparing for these things. That tonight I want to go to James 2. So if you have a Bible with you, will you please join me in, on any device or whatever way you, uh, you have, uh, you interface with the Bible. Can I ask you to please go there in James 2? Yeah, that's a very nifty word, hey? Interface. How you interface with the Bible. Yes, very, sounding very complicated and very, you know, savvy. <laughs> Trying my best. So James 2. Uh, for those of you that have been journeying with us in the book of James, you'll know that the book of James is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, as best as we understand, who was the leader of the church at that time. I believe this book was written in the, quite early on after the death of Jesus, somewhere around 50 years after Christ. In other words, about 20 years, somewhere around there after Jesus uh, ascended to heaven. And it's, the, it's written to the earliest iterations of the, of the church and of Christians at that time, which were mainly what we would call messianic communities. So it was these Jewish people that were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire at that time and that have turned to Christ and have come to the understanding that Jesus is the Messiah and have now started worshiping Jesus. And uh, they were experiencing some socioeconomic problems because of their faith in Christ. Because what was happening is as they were turning to Jesus, they were part of Jewish communities in these cities. Cities like Athens and Corinth and Philippi and Ephesus. And uh, in these cities, they were actually turning away from their friends and their families. And there was a sense of, of their family and their friends being upset with them because they were disowning their own faith and turning to Christ. And so they were experiencing how their own communities, their own families were turning against them and pushing them aside and ostracizing them. And this also meant that they were in the early phases of experiencing financial difficulty and because of this, because their families and friends would no longer support them financially or in their businesses, support their businesses. And uh, we, as we understand, this community, these, many of these communities, these messianic communities in the Roman Empire were becoming poorer and poorer and poorer. 
And some of them were really at the point now where they were struggling to feed their families, to, to pay for their children's school fees, you know, to modernize a little bit. To The Wi-Fi was now on like, you know, they only had a little bit. The, they, they went from 4G to, to Edge. They couldn't afford it anymore. You know, life was hard for them. I know in my house, that's the pinnacle of persecution is when I throttled the Wi-Fi. You know, and uh, so they were struggling, these communities. And it's to these communities that James writes these let, this, let, this letter. And he's, he's encouraging them. And we know the, the words of, you know, count it pure joy when you face trials. And we've spoken about how to get two things, you must go through some things. Like the people we just prayed for. To get to your degree, you have to go through the exam. Amen? Amen. For the joy set before you of one day getting that qualification or getting your matric certificate. There's no other way. You have to go through. And so James encourages these communities and he says, you're going through difficult times, but these things will bring you closer to the plans that God has for you and for his glory to be manifest through you. And uh, so he does a lot of that in the first chapter, but now we go to the second chapter and he gets quite real with them about some of the issues that they are facing and some of the things that they are being tempted with and actually beginning to give in to doing things the way that is not how the Bible expects of us to live. So I want to read with you James 2 verse 1 to 4 and then we'll make a couple of comments and work our way through it. My dear brothers and sisters, so in other words, James, just to remind you, he's writing to fellow believers. He's not writing to the worldly people. It's not like writing to unsaved people. He's writing to Christians. He's saying, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in, a fan, in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry and another one comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poorest one, you can stand over there or, or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that, you are, that your judgment are guided by evil motives? He calls them out. He, he doesn't speak nicely to them. He doesn't mince his words. He doesn't color it in nicely. He goes directly to the point and he says to them, how can you claim to be Christians, to be followers of this amazing Jesus, but I see in you that you favor some people over others? How is this possible? He's, saying what you, he's literally saying to you, what you proclaim to believe is not consistent with what you are doing. There's a discrepancy. And whenever there is a discrepancy between what we practice and what we preach, our practice nullifies our preaching. Isn't that true? Ultimately, people see how we live, and that's what they believe about us. Not what we tell them we believe, but how we live. And he says to them, your, your lives are shouting louder than what your proclamation, and it is going against what you're proclaiming. And he takes them on in this particular thing that they're doing. And he says, you are showing favor, you are, you are, you are treating rich people better than you're treating, treating poor people. You are showing favorites. You have favoritism. The word favoritism or discrimination or favor comes from the word in the Greek, prosopolepsia. Prosopolepsia. Sounds like a disease, doesn't it? So he's basically saying to them, you Christians that 
proclaim to be believers, I see among you a disease. You have a disease called prosopolepsia. How many of you know the principles of the mumps and the measles? If you've done LTS, you should know the principle of the mumps and the measles. If, I come to, if you come and visit me and I tell you I'm sick, but I've actually got the mumps, you know, pampuinkies. Swollen like this. Have you ever seen that? If I, if I tell you I've got mumps, but in fact I've got measles, what are you going to catch from me? Not mumps, measles. That's the principle of the mumps and the measles. You can lie to people, you can cover up, but what's really in you is what you pass on to others. And he's saying to them, you, have a, you proclaim to be people of Jesus, but I pick up amongst you the disease of prosopolepsia. And that's actually what you're busy passing on to others. And this is a problem. This thing of showing or acting in discrimination and treating people. The word prosopolepsia literally means to decide on people's value based on their outward appearance. To look at somebody and to decide who they are based purely on what you see. How they dress, perhaps the color of their skin, perhaps their gender. These are the things that you say, this is how I'm going to treat you. How many of you have been treated unfairly because of your appearance in any situation? It sucks. There's something fundamentally disturbing when we experience it. Let me ask the question, how many of you have ever treated somebody unfairly because of an appearance? Are we so eager to put up our hands now? Let me tell you, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but we've all done it. We've all done it. We all have preconceived ideas in our minds that our society and our culture has told us about people and we so often take the Take the shortcut, and that's just how we treat people. Now, I'll be honest with you, it's a problem the world has had since the beginning of time. And I'm, I don't think we're too surprised when we see it in the world around us. It's part of the fallen state of man. I'm not saying we should just accept it. I think we must fight it on every front. We must stand against it. But I think we're unrealistic if we think the world's not always going to struggle with this problem. It's part of the problem of sin. We can educate people, and we should. But it'll always be with us in some way, shape, or form. It changes its nuances. It moves, but it's always present. But I want to remind you, he's not writing to the world. He's writing to the church. He's writing to a Christian community, and he says to them, how is it possible that after having received the cure of the gospel, you still have prosopolepsia. You still have this disease. How is that possible? Did you not take the gospel pill correctly? Did you not follow the regiment? Did you not apply it? Did you cheek it and spit it out later and not really swallow the gospel? What did you do? Because if you really have the gospel, if you really took the pill, you cannot have this disease because those two are mutually exclusive. And he challenges them as a community of faith. As much as he challenges me, as much as he challenges us here today as a community of faith. And let's be honest, the church, 
throughout the centuries, we've struggled with prosopolepsia. We've, we've sometimes mastered the art of favoritism. And it seems to be that there's a, a really deep-seated struggle that we as human beings have. And that even in the, as followers of Christ, we must be attentive to this. Now, I want to be quick to say that I don't think James is trying to be woke. You know what woke means. Do you, how many of you know what woke means? Hey, I shouldn't, but I do. He's not trying to be you know, awake to social injustice only. Surely this speaks, he speaks into social injustice and the scripture does speak about social injustice issues. But he's actually going far deeper than that. He's going underneath it. He's not just trying, because if he was, he wouldn't speak to the poor people about them discriminating against the poor people. Because remember, he's saying, you brothers and sisters, I see that you favor the rich people. Who are these people that are favoring the rich people? Rich people. No, poor people. Because these Christian communities were the ones being impoverished. They were struggling. They were the poor communities. So literally what would happen is when they were gathering, whether in a home or in a synagogue somewhere or in a hall, and they were worshiping, lifting up the name of Jesus, reading the scripture. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament, but they were Jewish communities in their origin. So they would read the, the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah. And when they were praying together, he says, I see this among you, that when a wealthy person walks in, you all sit up and suddenly you're all excited. There's a wealthy person. And you, you dust off a special seat for that person and a cushion gets pulled out and everybody else sits on a stone, but this person now sits on a cushion, you know, and they have the air conditioner flowing on them and, and they get the free Wi-Fi password and, you know, everything's just like, they get the best. Because you do that, but your own fellow brothers and sisters that are, that are struggling, you put them on the floor. So he's not speaking to the rich. He's speaking to the, his fellow poor people, by and large. So he's not being, it's not firstly an issue about social injustice, although it does say many important things about it. But he's talking about our hearts and the struggle we have as people. He's talking about our inability so often to live consistently with what we believe. There's this principle in the church called Coram Deo. Coram Deo means to live in the presence of God. To live your life knowing that every moment of your existence you live in the presence of God. And to let that understanding change how you behave. Do you know that there's nothing you do, nowhere you go, where God's presence isn't? Every thought, every intention, every action we do in the presence of God. Now as a believer, that should impact on my life. That I live in a way that is consistent with what pleases God. When I don't live consistently with God's presence, I create in my own life this disconnect. And in that space of disconnect comes confusion and chaos. Because I'm living different to what I actually believe. But when I live Coram Deo and I live in the presence of God and I trust the Holy Spirit to help me. No, we're not, not going to get it. I'm not saying we get it right all the time, but this is the intention of our heart. This is what we desire. 
It's what we desire more than anything else. Lord, help me to get it right, to get better at it. That I live every day in your presence. And this is the challenge we face, you and I. I mean, it's really, fun. It's really quite easy on a Sunday evening at 7 o'clock to act like a Christian while you are here in the minor auditorium at Hatfield Christian Church. I mean, right now, all you have to do to look like a Christian is sit still and keep quiet. <laughs> then I'm really impressed with you. I mean, some of you I know, it's really hard to actually look at me while I'm talking. Some of you are so tempted to look at your cell phone. And some of you, I know that you're looking at me, but your mind is completely elsewhere. I know you. I see you. It's okay. But to act like a Christian at this point, to look consistent with your Christianity, is quite easy now. But it may be a little bit different tomorrow at about 10 o'clock in the morning. How many of you know that to be a Christian tomorrow at 10 o'clock may be a little bit harder than what it is now? But is God's presence any less with you tomorrow at 10 o'clock than what it is now? Does God say, well, he, did, he or she did so well Sunday night that I'll give them a bit of grace tomorrow at 10 o'clock? If they slip up, if they don't get it right, it's okay. At least I know they'll go to church and then we'll, we'll build up their credits again and then they'll spend it in the week. I'm, I'm so sorry to tell you God doesn't work like that. One moment cannot compensate for another. I live my life with him every moment, every single moment. And that shouldn't threaten us, that should be the joy. Isn't it fantastic to live with God? To have everything I do matter to him and be with him in everything. So therefore, everything we do has impact. So James says to this community of faith, these young Christian believers or this young church, as he says, the way you're acting is impacting on your ability to spread the gospel. If you carry on like this, you are actually going to disqualify the gospel. You'll bring disrepute to the name of Jesus because you are fundamentally undermining the message of the gospel. And what is he talking about? What is the real thing that they have? And, and to cut it short, just forgive me for just jumping to this, but the, the underlying problem is money. And not money in and of itself, their relationship with money. I want to ask you this question. What is your relationship with money? Because there's not one of us in this room that doesn't have a relationship with money. Unless there's like a three-month-old baby here. They have an indirect relationship with money. They don't yet. But the first time you get pocket money and get told by somebody to go buy your own ice cream, it's a cruel, cruel world. It's a cruel world, man. You know, I don't know what it is with parents that they think that it is right to withhold money from us and expect of us to manage our own money. But the moment that begins in your life, you develop a relationship with money. Now, why is money such a big deal? Money in and of itself is nothing. But what money represents, what money makes possible is for you and I to express our desires and to give attention to what we want in life. We were born with desires, and throughout the series we've spoken about that. James speaks about that in James 1. We have desires. Now, there are legitimate desires that God had given us. Our desire 
to be financially secure, to be able to look after ourselves, to, to, to eat, to have provision is a good desire. It's not a bad desire. God gave us that desire it's as old as man. Comes from the Garden of Eden before the fall. Adam and Eve had to work, eat the fruit of their labor. It's part of our makeup. Your desire to have money, to be able to buy things, is not a bad desire. But it can be twisted. It can be brought into spaces in your life where it has power over you that is not what it's intended to have had. And that's why the Bible speaks a lot about money, but not actually about money, but about our relationship with money. That's why the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money is the root of all evil, because money in and of itself is, it has no power. We have power, and when you add money to our power, we increase our power. Ethan and I was talking on the road here when we were driving, and I was remembering how sometimes you see people that win the lotto. And I think the statistics is 90% of people that win the lottery end up worse off than they were financially than before they won the lottery. Do you know why part of the reason they say? Is because a lack of money is a natural inhibitor in terms of your desires. There's many things you want to do but cannot do because you don't have the money. And it actually saves you because you can't do it. There's many people that will eat themselves to death, but they can't eat themselves to death because they don't have enough money to eat themselves to death. The problem is you moment you give them the money, they have the means to live out their desires and then their desires destroy them. And that's why most people end up in, tr- in trouble. Our relationship with money is a very tricky thing. So I told a, just a story from my own life and I know some of you heard it this morning. So you now have the right to just dream for a little bit. Just think of other things. Replay the Springbok match in your mind if you so want to or whatever. But uh, I grew up in a home that had challenges financially. My, my dad was an alcoholic and uh, a bit of a gambler. And so by the time I was 17, we lost our house, we lost our car, we lost everything we had because he th- threw it all away. I'll for- never forget the day they came and fetched our car. That's when it became real to me. By that time, we've actually already lost our house, but you know legal processes. But, and my mom tried her best. My dad wasn't saved. My mom was saved. She tried her best to make it as good as she can for us, but we lost almost everything. And later in my life, I only realized, but at that point, fear started coming into me, and there was something in me that took hold of me and that, that became a pressure internally that affected my relationship with money. No longer was money just something that I used to meet my needs. It became a thing that I needed to validate my life. I needed to feel like I had security to deal with this fear that was building in me that I'm going to fail financially. The embarrassment of it that I felt, it was really terrible. They took our car. So friends of ours had this old, now most of you won't know what the old Peugeot 504 looked like. It was a terrible car, it was a, an ugly color, it was loud, it was, it was somebody's car standing in the backyard that they didn't want to drive anymore, so they gave it to us. I can remember hiding under the dashboard when my mom took me to school with this car, I was so embarrassed. But that embarrassment built up in my heart and I became to the point where I, there was this pressure building in me. I needed money to feel 
like I'm going to do something in life. And uh, so, you know, I finished school and went to the military and did my military service and bought a little car while I was doing my military service. And then my car needed, uh, I was going to come do the year of your life. And as I prepared for the year of your life, I knew I needed money. My mom can't help me. So I needed pocket money for the year. So I worked at a restaurant while I was doing the last couple of months of my military service. I worked late at night. I was the worst, ter- most terrible waiter in the world. But somehow I was able to work and get a thousand rand. And that was going to be my pocket money for the year of your life here. Not pocket money, my money to look after myself, to buy my personal needs and everything. But just before I came into the year of your life, my little car broke, a little 1969 Morris Mini. Um, it was a death trap on wheels. It was cute, but it was... If I took out a girl in that car and she spoke to me afterwards, I knew she was interested in me and not in what I had. Because that car was a death trap. She often had to push the car. She often had to fear for her life in that little car. But in any case, so... I had this little car and, and I had to go and draw all the money I had, which was 900 rand that I ended up having. I had to draw that 900 rand and give it to the mechanic so he could fix my car. And this feeling was inside of me of, <gasps> I'm going to fail financially. I'm a failure. I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm not going to be able to buy soap. I'm not going to be able to have toothpaste. I'm going to be embarrassed. And it built inside of me. Uh, I did my year of your life, and as I was starting with a couple of months, a friend of mine, she gave me a thousand rand again, and she, she had a full sponsorship at uh, a bursary at Varsity that paid for accommodation, gave her fuel money, gave her spending money. So she took some of that money and gave it to me and said, yes, here's save your money for the year. So I was so thankful. But uh, I had the money for a couple of months, and then the Lord said to me, give it all away. Guess how much I had in the envelope left that she gave me? 900 rand again. So I took that 900 rand, wrote a name on it, put it under the person's pillow that the Lord gave, told me to give it to. And again, that feeling came up in me. I'm going to be embarrassed. I have no money. I don't want to be a burden on anybody else. And that sort of became the story in my life. For, and I don't have time to tell it all to you. And then eventually I met Natasha. Well, by that time I had known her, but eventually I asked her to marry me. And now I felt this, <gasps> now it's not just me. I'm responsible for this other person also. And that fear started building in me until I knew, until I realized I married up. Significantly up. I mean, she came from a similar situation. They were even poorer than we were. But she's a clever girl and she knows how to make money. So it didn't take her long and she'd start little side businesses and find a job. And she was really good at what she was doing. And it's like, oh, thank you, Lord, you provided for me. Thank you, Jesus. And the little fear subsided in me again because, oh, I had a brilliant wife. And I'm so thankful. Guys, can I, t- can I encourage you? Marry up in life. <laughs> Trust the Lord Jesus to give you the ability to marry up. But, but, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, marry up, it's the best thing you can do. But, but to the girls in the room, to the young ladies, don't make it easy for him. Don't make it easy for him. Don't make it easy. I'm so glad Natasha made it so difficult for me. And she's, she'll be preaching here next week so you can ask her the questions. But she made it so difficult for me. And I love that line out of the Wild at Heart book where John Eldridge says to, to us as men, he says, don't, don't look for a woman to make you feel like a man. Marry a woman or find a woman that challenges you to be a man. And she challenged me, man. 
She checked my integrity. She tested me. She checked my character around every corner to make sure that I may be young and I may be struggling in some areas, but there's substance to my life. She watched me deal with my mistakes and how I work hard, how I own them up to, up to them. She watched me once in the front of this church get beaten up by a guy because I challenged him on something he was doing with his girlfriend that wasn't right. And I challenged him and he beat me up. And I didn't know she was watching and I was on the floor and this guy hit me and I stood up and I literally turned the other cheek and I said, if you're going to hit me, hit me again. And that was the thing, finally, one of the things that sold her and said, that's a guy. That's a man. So guys, I'll be beating up some oaks outside after the service. <laughs> Come and turn, the, but you know what I mean. So I digress. Sorry, I, I, where was I again? But then by the age of 26, I found myself as a principal of a training center. Had a bunch of students that I had to educate and train, had salaries to pay, and the pressure was back on. The Lord called us. And Natasha had to work for a little while to keep us going, and then the Lord said she must be with me. And so we trusted the Lord. We had no money, and that fear again built up in me. And I was trying to do everything in my power to, to do the right thing financially. But the pressure was inside you. And whenever I was struggling financially or our training center was struggling and I couldn't come at the end of the month and I didn't know where the money was going to come from and I don't have the money to pay the salaries and, and to pay the, 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 now our costs and everything, the pressure would be here. And that fear would rise up in me that would say, I'm a failure, I'm going to fail financially, I'm going to be insolvent, I'm going to be bankrupt, I'm going to be embarrassment. And that pressure built. And one of the ways I dealt with that pressure is I, I, I learned the Bible said, if you sow, you will reap. So I would just give money. It's a really weird way to deal with the pressure like that. But fortunately, somewhere I got the sense. But even when I was doing that, there was something in me that was trying to barter with the Lord, to strike a bargain with Him. Lord, if I give this money, you owe me, eh? <laughs> and you've got the cattle on a thousand hills. So, you know, my little investment, I expect a return. Doesn't the Bible say, you know? 30, 60, 100 fold. So I'm like, you know, this is a good financial plan. I give, you'll recover for me, Lord. And it worked. The Lord was faithful. But the pressure kept building. And it started making me go weird in some places. And again, Natasha challenged me sometimes. She said, what's going on with you? What is your problem? Because I would feel like the world's closing in on me and get all miserable and want to give up and you know, do stupid things because of the financial pressure. I was never tempted to steal money or anything like that, but just to give up on the responsibility. And then one day, as I was praying, the Lord said to me, why do I provide for you? I said, Lord, because I sow. Just sort of came out of me. And the Lord said, no, no, it's because I'm your father. I love you. And just those little words started changing my relationship with money. Today I'm responsible for many people, not, you know, in my position, not me personally, in my position. Budgets and everything. And I tell you, there's pressure. And the only way I can deal with that is when I go to the Lord and say, Lord, you are my father. I'm secure in you. You love me. And you love these people. And you love us. I can trust in you. Because otherwise that pressure can build again. So I don't know what's your relationship with money. What's your story? 
Perhaps you grew up in a family where you had everything you ever wanted. Let me tell you, your relationship with money can be problematic. We all get challenged. And this is why the, the Lord Jesus zeroed in on how we behave with money. He said where, the, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. He looked at how we spend our money. And still today, there's not a rand or a cent that you spend that the Lord doesn't see. Because it's important to him. Not because the money's important, but because you're important. And your relationship with money is so determinative in your value system and who you really are. So it's because of this that James speaks to these believers. And he says, when you do this, I understand why you do this. Remember, these people were struggling financially. They were under pressure. They were facing the trials of not being able to pay what for, their, for their children's education. Not, you know, they were facing the embarrassment, many of them. Their families were mocking them, ridiculing them because they were struggling financially. And so you can understand when you're a group of people like that. Let's say we are all like that. We're failing financially. We're struggling. And now we are gathered here tonight and some of us are hungry. We haven't eaten. We don't know where our next meal is going to come from. And suddenly a wealthy person walks into the room. A person that we know they could buy all of us food. How many of you will be tempted to treat them differently? How many of you will have a problem if we say to that wealthy person, come and sit in the front? Because just now they give their tithe and then at least the church leaders can take some of the money from the tithe and distribute it amongst us and look after us, our needs. Perhaps help you pay your school fees or more importantly pay your daughter. <laughs> you know, this is what they were dealing with. Let's not be hard on these people. This is what they were facing. But he says to them, you cannot do that. Don't give in to the temptation to act against your faith because you're feeling the pressure. Live consistently with your faith. And we, it's easy for you and me to point fingers at somebody else that is doing it wrong. Let's, not forget about, let's forget about the other people. Let's think about us. When the pressure is on, what desires rise up within you? What temptations do you suddenly become? Becomes possibilities because the pressure is real. And he says you can't do that. And fundamentally, and, and I'm going to come try and finish. And fundamentally, when we give in to the temptation to do what we do for money, it leads to a deeper problem. And the deeper problem is how we see what is good. Now, when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, the tree that they ate from was called the tree of the knowledge of evil. Good and evil. Our problem is not just sin as the negative part, but it's also our problem is that we try to be good enough for God. And we'll never be good enough. Many of us, our struggle isn't only, not many of us, all of us. Our struggle is not only the sin that we're tempted with. Our biggest temptation actually is to think that we can be good enough. And to look at other people and expect of them to be good enough. So we work hard to be good. And so often... What we do is, we think, and it happens in this world all the time, we think, 
that people that have money have somehow been better than the rest of us. The reason they have money is because there's something good. And no matter how often we see how rich people, and James, that's why James writes here and he says, don't you know this rich people that take you to court? No, it doesn't matter how much we see rich people, how bad they behave. We all still want to be rich. We all still think we'll be better. Not just because of the money we'll have, but then I'll be able to do the good things that I want. How many of you dream of winning the lotto and then the thing you say, Lord, if you give me the lotto numbers, I'll tie through the church. I'll feed, them, I'll feed the poor. I'll do all of this. And we say, I can, be such a, I can be so much better. I can be such a good person. Lord, if you just help me. And we think we, we're so enamored with our own goodness. But this is the challenging message of the gospel. You cannot be good enough for God. And that's why James writes here and he carries on. And I, I, know what, I don't have time to read all the scripture. But please go read it where he says in verse 5. Listen to me dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? It's like he's saying you have to be poor. To know God you must become poor. Now that's a tough message. It's not an easy message. It's not a difficult message to obey. How many of you want to get closer to God? Now you're not so sure where I'm going with this. So you're like, well, I don't know. Depends. Well, according to this scripture, just bring everything you have and leave it here. Just become poor. Then you'll be closer to God. How many of you buy that? I think it's a great message. Louis and I will take care of everything you leave. You know, we'll, we'll make sure that it, you know, gets spent the right way. No, that's not the message of the gospel. But didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5 verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And I think he's writing here and he's talking to us about understanding our poverty. Being comfortable with the fact that we are poor. A poor in spirit, what it means is to know that you have nothing to give to God that deserves salvation. That you cannot come to God bringing Him anything that He will say, wow, that's amazing. Thank you for bringing me this. And I know it's not everything, but it's something, so I'm going to save you because you brought me something. That's not how salvation works. Salvation works when we realize I've got nothing good to bring to the Lord. I am poor. I am the worst kind of poverty. God, nothing. That's why Jesus tells the story. I'm not going to read it, but in, in Luke 18, where he tells the story of two people that had confidence in their own ability, or the one guy that came and prayed because he had confidence in his own goodness. And it was the Pharisee that prayed these words. And the, the, one was a Pharisee and the other was a dis, despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. I wonder what it is in your life that you will, if somebody had to say you're a bad person, what would you say? No, I'm not bad because I do this. For the Pharisee was, no, I'm not bad. I tithe. I give to the poor. If I had to say to you tonight, you're a bad person, what evidence would you hold up to say, I'm not a bad person? That's exactly what Jesus talks about. 
We all have those things that we try and hold up to say, I'm not a bad person. You know, well, I may be bad, but I'm not as bad as that person. We all have those friends that makes us feel better about ourselves because we're not as stupid as they are. We're not as bad as they are. I, I may do some stupid things, but at least I'm not as stupid as that person. I may, I may be bad at things, but I'm not as bad as that person. That's what the Pharisee was doing. Comparative goodness. And we all do it all the time. You, can, you don't have to be a Christian. You can be an atheist. You still do it. In fact, atheists do it more than anybody else. Because they believe in this natural morality. It's common sense to be a good person. They miss the point of the gospel. I need to be saved from my own desire to try and be a good person and to think that that'll be good enough for God. It's not. I'm poor. I have nothing to offer Him. And when I come to the Lord Jesus and I say, Lord, forgive me. I need your mercy and your grace. He gives it freely. I mean, I'm so excited about so many celebrities that we're hearing of right now that are supposedly getting saved. And I say supposedly because in the social media age, fake news and all of that stuff, you sort of don't quite know what you can trust anymore. But let's say Kanye West is really now saved. Let's praise God for that. It's fantastic. Like I said this morning, I'm personally more excited about Sir Anthony Hopkins that is now also saved. You know, he's a fantastic actor. But how many of you know that Kanye West, as amazing and as an influential person as he was, and is, sorry, with all his Twitter followers, with all his, you know, fame and all his connections, he did not make the kingdom a better place by becoming a Christian. God didn't need him to become a Christian for the kingdom of God to work. Kanye West cannot come to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful that you want to save me, but I just want to tell you, you're getting a bargain. Because with my salvation, I'm bringing all my connections, I'm bringing all my music, I'm bringing all my stuff, most of which which he has to repent of. I mean, he told, he's, he told us he's Jesus at a time, didn't he? Now, that's another story. Forget about that. Even if he didn't. There's not one of us that when we get saved, the Lord says, wow, boys, now we're going to make it. We were in trouble before, but now Kanye got saved. We've got money. We've got connections. We've got street cred. We're going to make it. The kingdom is going to grow. No. Last Sunday, I had the privilege of of bending down, and a seven-year-old girl came to me. Her mother brought her to me, and she said, I just gave my heart to Jesus today. Didn't Jesus say, come to me as little children? The kingdom is as excited about her salvation as it is about Kanye West's salvation. Because they're equally poor. They're bringing equally to the kingdom because they're poor. Are you poor? Are you okay? You see, my struggle was with my financial thing, and this is where my pressure came from. I was so concerned about not being embarrassed, about not being an embarrassment to myself, to my family, to my mom, that I was working really hard and I was actually using my faith 
to avoid embarrassment. But doesn't the scriptures say you've got to become fools for Christ? Today, I have to be prepared to be embarrassed for the Lord. I have to be prepared to say, Lord, I'm alone in this. Now, you know, I'm not looking to be embarrassed. But I can't make, I can't make my decisions as a leader with that pressure of trying to not be embarrassed or not be an embarrassment. I've got to lead this church and go forward where the Lord has called us to be. Not because I'm so fantastic or great. Really, I'm not. I, and I can promise you that. I'm not saying that is a statement of humility. That's a statement of fact. Just spend time with me. I'm not that fantastic. But somehow God decided that I'm the person to do this. And I've got to lead this church and make difficult decisions that some people shake their head at. And go, I don't understand what you're doing. And I say, but I, I know this is what God wants. I've got to sometimes deal with the embarrassment. I've got to deal with the financial consequences of it. But I can be free to do it when I trust in the Lord. And say, Lord, I'm not going to treat some people as more important than others. Because I just don't want to be embarrassed. I'm going to do some things that will be more difficult than other things. But I'll do it, Lord, because I don't mind. As long as I know that's what you want. The cost is okay. If it costs me everything, and that's what these believers were struggling with. Because you know they had to do one thing to change their financial situation. Is just stop believing in Jesus. If they stopped, their communities were literally putting pressure on them saying, if you stop believing in Jesus, then we'll take you back into our community. We'll support your business again. And financially they would be fine. All they had to do. And James writes to them and other scriptures writes to them and says, don't give up on your faith. Even if you die in starvation, you will inherit an eternal glory. That'll be worth it. All the pain you struggle on earth with. But God is faithful. He'll look after you. He'll provide for you. But like remember Daniel and his friends where they said, we're going to go into that fire and we trust the Lord that he will save us. But even if he doesn't, we will love him with all of our lives. That's what James was talking about here. This radical understanding that it's all about Jesus. I don't, I'm not good enough. And, I, and even today, after I've been saved for 40 something years, 40 years now, more than 40 years. I've lived my life so intentionally trying to serve the Lord Jesus. I've made so many mistakes along the way. And because I married up, I'm still standing. I mean, God and Natasha. Really. But because of his faithfulness. But can I tell you, I'm still no more wealthy than I was the day I got saved. Left to myself, I'm poor. I've got nothing to offer the Lord Jesus compared to who he is, how great he is. And the more I look at him, the more I get to know him, the more impressed I am with him and the less I'm impressed I am with myself because he's so fantastic. He's so beautiful. You are made in his image. There's potential wrapped up in you, but you cannot have it unlocked Unless you come to the Lord Jesus on your knees and you say, I've got nothing to give you, Lord. Then he 
as your creator, as your father, as the lover of your soul, as the one who died for you, will unwrap you and make known the beauty that he put within you. But if you try and do it, it'll come out skew and it'll come out horrible in the end. Only he can do that. You are beautiful because he made you beautiful. And it's not what anybody's opinion is. That's why favoritism is so bad. Because it makes people according to other people's opinion. Not according to God's opinion. God sees no difference in beauty based on financial standing, on education, on race, on gender. You are beautiful because he made you the way he wanted you to be. He made you in his image. And you know what is the best thing for any of us? When we believe it because he says it. Not because anybody else says it. Not because money says it. Or not because a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a wife or a husband says it. I can't be a good husband to my wife if I need her to tell me the whole time that I'm good enough. It's not her role. It's not her place. I put an unfair expectation on her. My wife loves me in ways I do not understand why. I don't deserve. But you know, when I do things wrong, and I do them wrong from time to time, the first place I go is I go to the Lord and I say, Lord, forgive me and thank you that you love me. And I find my security in Him first so that I can go and love her and not, she's not the one to love me out of my, she can't, it's not possible but he can. And his opinion is true and will never change. So if you need money to tell you you are good, you're in trouble. Because you may have money today, but you may have nothing tomorrow. If you need somebody to tell you you're good enough, you're in trouble. You'll never be free. You won't be free. Because tomorrow you may have people that like you and tell you you're good. But I promise you, either you'll do something or they'll do something that'll change that. And you'll end up in trouble. And you cannot live realistically and say, I don't care what people say. (laughs) There's not a single person on this planet alive that does not care what people say. We were made as social beings. And we care. And we should care. We can care too much, I understand that. But people that care too much are the people that haven't heard it from God yet. So I want to pray with you this evening. Because you are beautiful and I mean that. God is not expecting of you to be good. He's expecting of you to be poor. To surrender to him. Poor in spirit. To say, Lord, you have made me. I want to know that you love me more than anything else in this world. Is that okay? Can I ask you just to close your eyes? Can I have... Thank you. Let's just close our eyes. We, we finished. But I don't want to miss an opportunity. I just really sense in the spirit that there are people in this room trapped right now. Trapped in that space of trying to be good enough for somebody to see you. Good enough for somebody to recognize you. Good enough for somebody to give you a chance. 
good enough for somebody to believe in you. Good enough for somebody to say, you're going to make it. I understand that. And it's very powerful when people can come alongside you and believe in you and give you a chance and see potential in you. But I want to tell you, it's, it may happen or it may not happen. But what I can tell you will happen is that if you give God a chance, He will tell you who you really are. He will tell you how impressed He is with you. He will tell you how beautiful you are, how good you can be in Him if you allow Him to build His goodness in you. It doesn't matter what you have or don't have. You are who God made you to be in your inherent, in your intrinsic being. Sin has come and twisted that and marred that image. But if you surrender your life to Jesus, He will restore the original image He made you in, in your life. And you will become beautiful more than ever before. And many of you are on that journey already. But sometimes you may feel the pressure. And you may play favorites. You may give some people more opinion and more right in your life than you do what God says about you. Lord, we come to you this evening. And I pray that in this moment, your Holy Spirit will speak to each of us individually. And come and speak to us, Lord. Speak your words of love to us. That are not words of feeling. It has feeling to it, but it's not about feeling. It's words of truth. It's the words that the universe was built upon. It's the words of life. It's the words of hope. It's the words of destiny and of future. Of possibility. It's the fact that God loves me. If I know that and understand that, that changes everything for me. Thank you, Lord Jesus. That I can be free from trying to be good enough for you. But that I can come to you tonight and surrender my life so that you can work your goodness in me and so that true goodness and real goodness will begin to manifest through my life. If as I'm speaking tonight and you sense the Holy Spirit working in you, if you sense the Holy Spirit just saying to you that you need to surrender to Him, I'm going to ask you just right where you are to stay. I want to pray a prayer with you particularly and then I'm done. Hand over to Dolly. So right now, if you just sense the Holy Spirit saying, just give me, just allow me let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you how much I love you. Lord, I thank you for people that are standing. I don't think it's not that you're not speaking to others. But these people are recognizing that there's a key moment in their hearts right now. And they want to respond to that. And I pray for each of us, Lord. You know each person intimately in this room. You have counted their days. You have been with them all the time. You know them.
And I pray right now that your love for them would just go to a deeper place of reality than ever, more than ever before. Right now. I pray that any person that has been made to feel ugly, whether it's what they've done is really ugly or not, that's not the question. But I pray right now that they would be able to come to you and say, Lord, I recognize this ugliness in me, but I thank you that you love me. And that my ugliness is no threat to you. And it is not something that chases you away. It's actually what draws you towards me. It's because you know I need you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Jesus. I pray for the love of the Father to be settled in our hearts right now. Just allow the Holy Spirit. I'm going to hand over to Darlene and you can lead us from here. But just, I'm just, just stay standing. Allow the Holy Spirit to just speak to you right now. Just allow the Spirit of God. He's busy with you. Just to love you. Speak truth to you. Thank you, Lord.